This morning we'll look at uh, John chapter 4. A few uh, years ago, a missionary friend of ours who actually was from this city was telling Christy and I about a cross-cultural experience that she had right here at the Mall of America. She was standing in that large area, you know, near all the rides, and there's a bunch of kiosks and people selling things. And having had overseas missionary missions experience, she noticed one of the workers behind the kiosk looked like she was from a certain unreached people group in Nepal. So she went over to this person and began to engage her and She asked her where she was from and the circumstances that brought her, and the woman responded with clear but accented English, confirming that indeed she was from this rather large unreached people group in in Nepal. So they continued with somewhat normal conversation, and and soon the woman behind the kiosk began to cry. And, And my friend, of course, nervous that she had somehow offended in her question, said, Why why are you crying? And the woman responded, and she said, she said, I have worked in this mall for more than two years, and this is the first time anyone has ever talked to me. Of course, this could play out anywhere. It just so happens to be here in this city, but it could happen anywhere. Missiologists provide really a helpful uh, explanation of this situation. See, we often categorize people around us in one of three ways, and interact with them accordingly. We categorize people as part of the scenery. These are people that we walk by every day. People that we see at Walmart. People that we try to avoid crashing our carts into at Walmart. We don't really interact with them. They're just there, kind of moving around in the background of our lives. The second category is people that we see as part of the machinery. These are the people who do stuff for us. It's the guy who delivers our Amazon packages or bags our groceries or changes our oil. We interact with these people in a kind of a transactional way. And if the transaction goes in our favor, usually it's a polite and courteous interchange. And if it doesn't go well, we, if you're like me anyway, use our words to try to fix the machinery to work more in our favor. The third group are the people who we actually acknowledge as people. These are the ones who that we see. They're people that we truly interact with. Oftentimes, these are the ones that we're familiar with or that we feel a certain level of connection or comfort with. And I'm sure if you could quickly scroll through your week, you can think of, the different people who are the scenery, the different people who are the machinery, and the people who you see during your given week. Now, this, this woman had been at the mall for two years and no doubt had engaged in thousands of transactional conversations, no doubt even with a lot of Christians. And for thousands of others, she was just kind of part of the scenery of the mall until that friend spoke to her She had never really been seen as a person. You know, in John 4, as we come to this passage, Jesus encounters a woman who everyone else had really seen as part of the scenery. And it was even a part of the scenery that everyone kind of wanted to hide. Or maybe they had seen her as part of the machinery. They needed water, and she was there, and she could pull up water for them. But Jesus chose to see her as a person. 
and interacted with her with intentionality that would bring her to himself. So as we enter into the chapter, the fourth chapter of John is a story that I'm sure many of you are very familiar with. We have seen Jesus in chapter 1 introduce himself as the Word made flesh dwelling with us. And then in chapter 2, the dawn of a new age is announced as Jesus breaks onto the scene at the wedding of Canaan. Chapter 3 is interesting because Jesus is interacting with an educated Jew and explains to this educated Jew how a person enters into the kingdom of God. And then now in our story, we find Jesus engaging with a uneducated, non-Jewish woman, and he's showing us who can enter into the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is not for one race. It's not for one ethnicity, but it is for all people. Now, if we look ahead in just a few short years after Jesus' death and resurrection, Jesus is going to dispatch his disciples from Judea to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And here in John 4, we almost see like a foreshadowing of that as his uh, commission of going to Samaria and Judea, we see Jesus himself engaging on a cross-cultural missions trip, if you will, into Samaria. He is modeling to his disciples and to us what it means to engage in cross-cultural ministry. Not only does he model it, but he is teaching something profound about this ministry, that this ministry is deeply satisfying. I think most of us, if we're honest, are quite intimidated with the idea of cross-cultural evangelism. In fact, let's be honest, we're intimidated and afraid of evangelism, period. It doesn't matter what kind it is. But evangelism, and especially cross-cultural evangelism, a lot of times we kind of think, well, that requires some kind of special gifts or at least some kind of special training. And when we think of our, you know, Muslim neighbor down the road or we think of that person in the community, we hope that someone with that special training or that special gift will meet that person because we certainly don't feel equipped to do it. Not only this, but we, we really find ourselves with full plates, don't we? we? We do a lot of wonderful ministry things, and a lot of time is devoted to our Christian community. We fight for joy together, and yet we find it really difficult as a community to strategize together to bring the gospel to those nearby who are quite different from us. So as we look at this well-known story uh, today, it will serve as a kind of a demystifying, if you will, of evangelism. What we see Jesus doing here is engaging in a really simple conversation, bringing somebody to the gospel. So we're going to look at this really in two different parts. The first part is looking at the conversation that the woman had, that Jesus had with the woman in verses 1 through 26. And we're going to kind of notice, I'm going to point out as we go, really five turning points or aspects of this conversation. And then secondly, in verses 27 through 41, I'm just going to look briefly at the joy that comes through evangelism. The joy that Jesus expresses of doing the will of the Father. So our first aspect, the first turning point, if you will, of this conversation 
is in verses 1 through 6. Jesus intentionally crosses cultural barriers and moves to the fringe. So as this story begins, Jesus and his disciples are on a journey because they have learned that the Pharisees are uh, growing frustrated with them, and so they're leaving the area, uh, the Jewish area of Judea in the south, and they're heading to Galilee in the north, but right in between is the area of Samaria. Now the Jews deeply resented the Samaritan people. In that region, centuries before Jews had intermarried with pagans, and they kind of created this blended faith, a little bit of Judaism and a whole lot of other religions. They worshiped the God of Israel along with other pagan deities. So devout Jews hated the Samaritans because of their blasphemy. The Samaritans would accept the writings of Moses but rejected the rest. Rather than looking at the temple of Jerusalem as the place of God's presence and promise, they set up their own temple in Samaria where Abraham had first built an altar when entering the promised land, the temple at Mount Gerizim. The Jews saw themselves as the people of God's pleasure and favor, and the Samaritans had corrupted all the good gifts that God had provided. The Jews would not even be willing to drink a cup, drink from the same cup or a bowl of the Samaritans. Oftentimes when devout Jews were going north, they would go all the way around, way around Samaria in order to avoid it altogether. But John says that Jesus had to pass through Samaria. Jesus was on a cross-cultural mission to bring the glory of the gospel to the very people that the Jews resented. You can imagine it's a hot day. There's little shade along the way. The road is dusty and dirty, and the disciples and Jesus are tired from their journey. Jesus sits down at this well. It's an ancient well that was originally established by Jacob centuries before, and he sits there to rest And the disciples head into a town to get some food. Soon after he sits down in the shade, a Samaritan woman came all by herself to the well. It would have been quite unusual for a woman to come at noon all by herself. And Jesus said, not having a bucket, he said, could you give me a drink? Now, not only were Jews not allowed to drink from a bucket or a cup of a Samaritan, but even more, Jews commonly said that Samaritan women were so unclean that they were constantly menstruating. A serious Jewish man would never, ever interact with a Samaritan woman. So when he heard Jesus' question, she was shocked. She was shocked. My, my water jar, jar will defile you, and beside, you don't realize who I am. I'm rejected by my own community. That's why I'm here all alone at noon. What a strange and naive man to be asking me for water. What she doesn't know is that Jesus is seeking her. Jesus was intentionally breaking through these cultural barriers Seeing someone who had been everyone else's scenery or machinery, he saw her. She is why 
they went through Samaria. Now, every culture in the world has these divisions. In Africa, they call it tribalism, which is deep animosity that is often accentuated by events in history. In some places in China, parents would try to bribe their children to be good. You know, maybe we try to say, here, if you're good, I'll give you a piece of candy, right? Some places in China, a uh, Chinese parents will bribe their children and tell them if they don't behave, those Hui Muslim people, people over in that other village are going to come eat you at night. A Chinese pastor once told me to stop going and talking to Muslim people at a mosque because they probably are going to kill you. What happens is our differing cultures and histories erect these barriers and we start to avoid people. Our barriers here, we don't have any legends like that that I know of, but they're just as real. It's a barrier that we feel between the educated and the uneducated, between the rural and the white collar, between the black and the white, and barriers that we erect erect around people who we feel like don't belong or people who are changing our culture. We think they're they're, they're changing our values, and we begin to resent them for it. In every culture, people are constantly sizing one another up and putting each other into categories. And these categories then serve as barriers and fences so that we stay safely within our tribe. But not Jesus. He intentionally crossed into this great cultural divide. As the conversation goes on, we see the second aspect, which Jesus begins to expose a spiritual need. So after she expressed her shock that Jesus would ask her for a drink, look at what Jesus does. Knowing that she is the one who is truly thirsty, in verse 10, he turns the conversation away from temporal, cultural disagreements, and he says, You know, if you knew who I was, you would be asking me for living water, and I would give it to you. She didn't really see the depth of what Jesus was saying. And she says, wait a second, I thought you asked me to draw water. You don't even have a bucket, and this well is old and it's deep. If you are offering water without means to deliver it, you must be greater than the person who built this, Jacob. So Jesus continues. He says, well, when you drink from this well, you're going to get thirsty again, just like Jacob and his descendants and his livestock and every single other person who has ever drank from this well since. You see, there is in you a deep thirst that is spiritual. You know it's there, and you're trying to satisfy it with all kinds of things that will never work. What you really need is you need spiritual water, a living water. And that is what I am offering you. See, this living water is the very Spirit of God who gives spiritual life. It's a phrase that is really ripe with prophetic fulfillment. Living water had a rich prophetic imagery. In Isaiah 12, 3, Isaiah says, In the day of salvation, God's people will draw water from the wells of salvation. Zechariah 14, the prophet says, On that day, living water will flow out of Jerusalem, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. So there's these rich Jewish prophetic 
imageries revolving, involving water. And here Jesus is offering the fulfillment of these prophecies to a Samaritan woman, and there's not a single Jew in sight. You know, if you're not a Christian this morning, Jesus is offering to you what your soul most deeply desires. Your desire for meaning that keeps you after chasing after promotions and success, the hunger for pleasure that keeps you buying more and doing more, none of which satisfies, the emptiness and shame you may feel that keeps you pursuing relationships that never seem to really satisfy. Jesus is offering the satisfaction for your soul that you were created for, the very living God dwelling in you. For the Christian, looking at this through the lens of cross-cultural missions, either abroad or locally, there's really something amazingly freeing at this point. The thirst that this woman has is the same thirst that every other person who's ever walked the face of the earth has. I used to be really intimidated by people from other cultures. I think now I'm a little more intimidated by people that look a lot like me, to be honest. But there's this thought of, how can I possibly relate to that person? They're so different from me. But the reality is, all people are fundamentally the same. A 30-year-old nomadic sheep herder in Mongolia is a thirsty sinner looking for meaning, just like a 50-year-old immigrant in Minneapolis. So what does that mean for evangelism? Well, sometimes we're afraid to approach people because we imagine them to be so different from us, and we think, I could never interact with this person. I could never talk to this person. Think about the, uh, the programmer in your office from India who speaks with a heavy accent and eats food that you're not quite sure what it is at lunch. He is much more like you than you think. How about the lady in the park with her kids and the head covering that's speaking a language that you have no idea what she's saying? We think others outside of our culture and our tribe are so different from us that we couldn't possibly relate to them, much less engage them with the gospel. But the reality is they are just like you and me and the Samaritan woman. They are fellow humans created in God's image, and they're thirsty, and we have the living water to offer to them. As we return to the story, we see that the woman did not understand what Jesus was offering. She was really living in verse 15 with physical realities in view. If I can have water so I don't have to return to this well, please let me have it. It's hot. It's far away. Are you telling me you can give me a water and I don't have to come back to this well again? How much better would her life be if she didn't have to keep coming back? See, oftentimes when people encounter Jesus for the first time, they see some advantage perhaps that they could get and, and they want it. Over the years, sharing gospel stories with Muslim friends, it was not uncommon for them to read a story in the Gospels and for them to say, wow, Jesus seems so wise and powerful. I need to study him so I can become a better person. 
Or they would say something like, wow, Jesus says I can have a new life? That would be great. I would love a new start. I hate my life as it is. Or they would look at a family and they would say, your family is, is nice. Your kids are respectful. Maybe if I follow Jesus, I could have the same thing someday. Or maybe it's not a positive response like that. Maybe it's something like this, that you Christians, you know, you seem fine for the most part, but your dogma is so narrow. If I follow Jesus, if I believe Jesus, then I'm going to become narrow just like you, and I don't want that. They're assessing Jesus through really a temporal lens. If I perceive he can make my life better in some way, then, hey, let's keep talking. If I perceive he's going to disrupt my life, no thanks. It's very common for people who are unspiritual to judge Jesus for the temporal advantage or disadvantage that they think associating with him will bring. And that's what this woman was doing. So what does Jesus do? Verse 16, he gently begins to expose her sin. He doesn't correct her misunderstanding, but he guides the conversation to help her realize you actually are thirsty and you don't even realize it. Only as she sees her sin would she begin to sense her spiritual need, the real source of her thirst. So he says, go, call your husband. To which she says, hoping to move on from the subject, hey, I don't have one. Nothing to talk about here. But look how kindly Jesus answers in verse 17. He gently commends her for her truthfulness while pointing out to her that he knows her. He says, well, actually, you've, you've been married many times, and the man you're currently sleeping with is not your husband. And this is bringing you great shame, and it's bringing you great isolation. He reminds her that she has been able, up till now, to escape the feeling of guilt and shame that she carries. You can imagine the shock, Right? Here's this woman thinking she's talking to this really strange man, and he just told her everything, her deepest secrets. How does he know this? How can he possibly read my life like an open book? He must be a prophet. Maybe, maybe he is the prophet that Moses spoke about. Maybe it's the Messiah. But rather than divulge into the depths of her heart, she diverts the conversation into a bit of a religious controversy. A long dispute between Jews and Samaritans. She asks, since you must be a prophet, tell me, where is the proper place for worship? Is it here in Jerusalem? We've been debating this for a long time. Finally, maybe you can give us the answer. See, the religious world does not provide forgiveness and satisfaction for sin. In God. But what the religious world does do is it provides a mirage of safety. People can feel safe behind their dogma. If I keep the traditions, I should be all right in the end. This kind of religious evasive action took place all the time when we were having friends, conversations with Muslim friends. I can remember oftentimes we'd start to talk about sin and the religious muslim might say to us 
hey, hey, hold on a second. Let's talk about what you think about the prophet Muhammad. Or they would say something like this. You know, you Christians, you worship three gods. That's the greatest sin. Maybe an uneducated, nominal Muslim who doesn't know really anything about their faith would say something like, are you Christians allowed to eat pork? We Muslims know that that's really bad. In fact, my grandma told me that that's really bad. And if I eat pork, I'm going to go to hell. And I love my grandma, and I know she wouldn't lie to me. Or maybe the modern seculars today would raise their dogma objections. Doesn't your religion preach love? Then how could you possibly condemn the LGBT community? That's why I will forever reject Christianity. So when these questions come up, do we get bogged down into these difficult questions? Is this really the essence of evangelism, to fix people's understanding about Christianity? You know, sometimes, unfortunately, we feel like we have to be experts in Islam to engage a Muslim. Or we have to be experts in Catholicism to engage a Catholic from South America. We don't need to be experts. We just need to know the gospel and simply bring the conversation back to Jesus. You know, what is awesome about engaging people cross-culturally here in the United States is that people who have immigrated here from other countries, especially developing ones, are oftentimes religious people. And they love to talk about religion. If you talk about religion with a secularist, post-Christian neighbor, oftentimes, you know, the blinds go down. They're not interested. But if you start talking to about religion with people from many developing countries, they know religion is important. And they're glad to engage it. And let that be an encouragement to you. The people that seem so far off are actually much nearer than we think. So how does Jesus deal with this situation? How is Jesus, who is exemplifying in this setting, this cross-cultural ministry, deal with this religious question about the temple and then draw her back to the gospel? Well, what he does is he engages with the question, but he focuses on the true answer, which is himself. In verse 21 Essentially, Jesus says, you know, I understand your question, but the reality is neither this temple is going to bring you what you really need, nor is the temple in Jerusalem going to bring you what you need. What is vital for salvation is not where someone worships, but it is how someone worships. Both of these temples are insufficient. You see, the Father is calling worshipers from among the nations. No longer is Jerusalem the dwelling place of God, but God is going to inhabit the nations. He will dwell in people through the Spirit, the living water who is creating worshipers who worship in spirit and in truth. One commentator said the prophets had spoken of a coming day when not one sanctuary alone but the whole earth would be the habitation of the name and the glory of God. So in essence, Jesus is saying to this woman, he is saying, not in that temple there, not in Jerusalem, but in you, the presence of God is going to dwell. So how do we worship in spirit and truth? By turning from the lies 
of false religion or non-religion and turning away from self-effort in our attempts to save, satisfy our, our thirst with things that really don't satisfy. And instead, by faith, turn to Jesus, the one who died for our sins and rose from death. Now, if you look closely at verses 20 through 21, you see that Jesus does acknowledge where her faith is wrong. Salvation doesn't come through Samaria. God's plan of redemption flowed through Judah. At best, they were believing kind of a half-truth. But he doesn't really belabor the difference, does he? He quickly offers hope. He says the time has come. Now is the time that the Father is seeking worshipers, and he is seeking you. You know, the woman feels probably a bit overwhelmed and kind of throws up her hands. She says, you know what? I know the Messiah is coming, and once that happens... We will know for sure. Jesus very directly says, the one who is speaking to you is the Messiah. You know, this is really the heart of missions and evangelism. It's simple conversations where we lead people to encounter the Messiah. These are beautiful and and sacred moments. A few years ago, it's played out many times, and I can think of one in particular. I was talking to a Muslim friend who asked that question that I mentioned before. Well, what do you think about Muhammad? Man, that's a question to get bogged down in. Carefully said to him, well, you know, he is someone that I have much respect for, and there's a lot that I don't know about him, but... I do know that he himself was not sure if his sins were forgiven. He himself was not sure whether or not he would enter into paradise. I said to my friend, if if Muhammad wasn't sure, what chances do you think you have? He kind of looked at me, embarrassed, and smiled a little bit. And he said, well, you know, God decides these things. God decides if I'm My sins are forgiven. I could never even know that, just like Muhammad never knew that. To which I said, you know, Jesus said that your sins could be forgiven. In fact, he announced to people many times that their sins were forgiven. Even more than that, he said that we can know God as a father and we can can be known and loved by God. Don't you want to have your sins forgiven? Don't you want to be known by God? Now, not trying to minimize these objections and these legitimate questions, there's a time and place to delve into those, but really the goal is to bring people to encounter Jesus and to invite them to rest in him. So what have we seen so far in these conversation, this conversation with Jesus. We saw that Jesus did not remain in his own tribe, but he intentionally crossed culture and kindly brought the gospel to this woman. We saw that he moved the conversation to spiritual need. He offered her satisfaction for her soul, the living water. He gently and carefully exposed her sin, 
And then he guided her through religious and cultural objections to see that all the answers for her questions were found in Christ. So after we see this example of Jesus' first cross-cultural mission, we see now the satisfaction that Jesus has from engaging in this work. Remember, the disciples went out. They were looking for food. And they came back wondering why Jesus would be wasting time and risking status talking to this woman at this well. Of course, they didn't want to talk to this woman directly. So you can see in the passage, they're just kind of muttering about behind the scenes, wondering what is going on. And they don't want to ask Jesus directly either. So as the disciples are standing there confused, not really knowing the sacredness of this encounter, John says the woman left her water pot and she went into the town to invite the people to come out and see a man who told me everything that I had ever done. A change had taken place in this woman. She left the jar, symbolizing the old religious forms, the temporal water, and she went and she invited the town to come and meet the Messiah. Because she had encountered the one who had removed her shame, it no longer had power over her. And she went and she invited the entire community who had rejected her before because she had been sought by the Father and invited into his community. You know, in missions work, we're often told that we should target people of influence. Now, Jesus shot, sought this person probably of the least influence in this entire community. But look at how God used this woman, changed by the gospel, to bring an entire town to the Savior. You know, I wonder sometimes in my own heart why I do not share God, the gospel with the passion and the joy that this woman had. You know, part of it is, I'm sure, that I've lost sight of the joy that the gospel brings in my own life. So now with the food purchased and in hand, the disciples urge Jesus to eat. They're telling him, verse 31, we got the food, you look hungry, stop talking to this woman, eat something. His response, I have food to eat that you don't know. You see, to do the will of the Father was his food. There was greater sustenance and satisfaction in this than any food the disciples could offer him. See, offering salvation to this woman brought greater joy to Jesus than any kind of physical comfort. You know, is it possible that the joylessness that we experience in our churches is a part of this? Because we're not actively participating in the Father's work of calling the nations to worship. Have you ever spoken to an unbeliever of Christ and not tasted this joy? And you walk away and you think, that was amazing, I want to do that more. And then life gets in the way and we don't do it more. It's hard and awkward, but I can guarantee you, introducing lost people to Jesus gives us a joy like nothing else. I remember a few years ago, 
in Beijing. An Australian Chinese brother was passing through considering joining our team. And I met him for lunch at a KFC, and he had already been um, on his journey. He had shared the gospel already that day with a few people, just as he was kind of going about life. And I kind of just jokingly dismissed it as a gift and, uh, that he had, which I certainly did not, but he didn't think so. He said, you know, I just find it amazing to sh- share the joy of the gospel with people. He said, in fact, not long before that, he was worried that it was becoming too much of an idol, so he stopped sharing the gospel for one week. He was going to do a fast for a week. I've never had to do that. But he said he broke the fast because he became physically ill from not having this joy. I'm not like that, brother. I'm sure no one here is as well. But I have experienced this joy at times. Over the last two years, as persecution increased, many of our co-workers were being arrested, interrogated, deported, and the advice of many was just pause, lay low, don't do ministry, wait for this season to pass, or just leave. But we didn't pause and lay low because the unbelievable joy of sharing Christ far surpassed this illusion of physical comfort and safety. It was profoundly difficult but deeply satisfying. As the scene comes to a close, a crowd from the city is coming out to see this Messiah that the woman testified about. Seeing the crowd coming, Jesus says, Look, lift up your eyes. The fields are white to harvest. In agriculture, there are four months between sowing the seed and harvest, but Jesus is here announcing a new era. The era anticipated by the prophet Amos in Amos 9.13, it says, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman. The the time has arrived when there is so much opportunity to declare the gospel that the work of sowing and the work of reaping will be happening simultaneously. It's the language of abundance. The seed of the gospel is so vibrant. It is as if sowing and reaping are almost the same activity. Both are necessary, and both the sower and the reaper can rejoice because success is guaranteed. This process will not stop until the glory of the Lord has covered the earth as the waters cover the sea. And Jesus is calling us to join in this mission that cannot fail. You think about the things that we put our energy to that aren't going to last Jesus is calling us to this mission. As the water of life is offered, people will believe. What an amazing encouragement in the task. Our task is really simple. We're to sow the seed of the gospel. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. Some plant, some water, some harvest, but it is God who gets the increase. He is the one who does it. You know, the reality is most of our Sowing, we have no idea what God is going to do with that. But it's helpful sometimes God pulls back the curtain a little bit and lets us see a little glimpse of what he's doing. It's so encouraging. In the history of the spread of the gospel, if we take a step back, we can see this process of sowing and reaping taking place. 
back in 1989, so not long ago. Think about what you were doing in 1989 if you're, you know, alive that long. It's not long ago, 30 years. There were only about three countries, in the, three Christians in the entire country of Mongolia. In the 90s, missionaries entered Mongolia and began sharing the gospel, and over time, people began to believe. And now it's nearly impossible to count all the Christians in Mongolia. There are over 500 churches with seminaries and Bible schools, and they're sending missionaries out in droves to other parts of the world. Some of these missionaries we were able to work with ourselves in China. It's unbelievable. Now they are sowing and they are reaping in new and untouched fields. They have this amazing worship song. And it describes, it captures the new life that Mongolian has, Mongolians have. It, it kind of looks back how they used to be uh, warriors riding off to far places to capture new lands. And now they ride as Christians, declaring the glory of Christ. The work among the Hui and the Uyghur people that we have had the privilege of being a part of is still kind of on the other side of that sowing. For the last 20 or 30 years, hundreds of missionaries, hundreds, have spread the gospel among the Uyghur and Hui people. Chinese Christians have now begun their work of cross-cultural missions in conversations very similar to Jesus and this woman. It's a season of sowing. We don't know when the reaping is going to come, but it will, and it will be a massive harvest as missionaries have been kicked out, new opportunities with smartphones and media have emerged, way people in very isolated parts of the country places completely untouched by the gospel, are downloading and reading the scriptures. Recently, we heard that there are over 40 new downloads of the Huey Bible every day. 25,000 Uyghur Bibles in a very similar format have been downloaded last year, and both groups are engaging with Christians online, being offered the living water of the gospel. We don't know when, but at some point, the word, which does not return void, but produces fruit for which it was sent out, it will render a harvest of worshipers. So many of you have sown among family and in the workplace with friends and neighbors. We anticipate with you the harvest. Rejoice knowing that the seed will produce a harvest. The Father is calling worshipers to himself. And in God's field, in this economy that Jesus just announced, the sower and the reaper can rejoice together. We can rejoice at the harvest even before we see it taking place. In closing, let me just bring four, three or four areas of application to consider. First of all, in our modern world, I don't know that it's always helpful to think of Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth so much as places to go, but as people who are probably all around us. We are surrounded by people who have no one engaging them with the gospel. People from the ends of the earth, you know this better than I do, live right here among us. 
Secondly, I would encourage you to look, look around. Who is outside your tribe or group who may not have any access to the gospel? Have you had a conversation with a Muslim person? You know, in many places of the world where there are movements of faith among Muslim people to the gospel, oftentimes it's the women who come to faith first. Maybe God will do that here. Sometimes we presume for the Holy Spirit and we decide, you know, oh, that person will never come to faith. But remember what John said in chapter 3, verse 8, right before the story that we read. He described that the Spirit is like the wind. We see its effect, but we don't know where it comes from or where it's going. We we really don't know. We don't know where the Spirit's going to move. And, you know, really, if we looked at this, chapter 3 and chapter 4, We look at Nicodemus and say, he knew more. He probably is more likely to have believed than this Samaritan woman. But in the narrative, it's it's actually the Samaritan woman who believes. We never know what God's going to do. In our time and space reality, we, we don't often have conversations at one time that capture all of these things that Jesus did. Usually, the progression through these points, you know, spans many conversations. So maybe we leave one conversation with a cultural objection to Christianity that our friend raises, but we don't have to stop there. We pray and we consider, how does Jesus answer that objection that my friend raised? We return to the next conversation and we say, you know, what you really said, what you said really made me think, and and you raised some really, really good points. Thank you for that. Can I share with you one or two of my reflections from what you said? Then you go on working to guide the conversation back to Jesus because he is the one that they must deal. And finally, the gospel will not fail, and I want to leave you with this. We're at this interim period We are celebrating the Lord's Supper today as a symbol of looking for the return of the Lord. And we're waiting for that day when he gathers his elect. Jesus said to his disciples, look, the fields are white to harvest. The same disciple In Revelation 7, as he is anticipating the day that we are waiting for, at the end, John again looks. John, Revelation 7, he looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes, and peoples, and languages, were standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, for the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that this gospel will not fail. And as we are in this in-between, waiting, anticipating for that great day, when we look and we see people from every tribe and tongue and nation. Father, may we be a part of your calling the nations to yourself. In Jesus' name we pray.